Isn't it just a temporary love? Isn't that what it's supposed to be?
Radio ANA on 3CR 855 AM or 3cr.org.au and we are broadcasting from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and we want to acknowledge and pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the ongoing resistance to colonisation of all First Nations people across these lands. So this is a new show (laughs) or an incarnation of various previous shows and this show is going to be about community and individual responses to harm, transformative justice, accountability, safety, support and healing and prison abolition within and challenging dominator culture. So obviously that's many things but conversations. Would you like to introduce yourself? (laughs) <laughs> Hello, I'm Annelise. How are you doing, Annie? I'm good. I'm tired, to be honest. How are you? Yeah, similarly feeling pretty tired and feeling a bit burdened by what's going on in the world at the moment. Um, so kind of maybe even a good time to be starting a show like this and having these conversations in amongst all the fuckery that is going on in terms of dominator culture. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, something we've spoken about a lot and then maybe we will talk about further, well, we definitely will, is just the links between all these different things. You know, a lot of the time when we talk about community and individual responses to harm and transformative justice can feel completely separate or it's framed completely separately to all the oppressions and the fucked stuff that's happening all across the world and that sometimes... You know, sometimes it feels really difficult to know um, what solidarity looks like or what resistance looks like, especially outside of kind of a pattern of the same sorts of protest. Yeah, and that feeling of powerlessness and how to kind of connect the things we're doing in our lives and in our communities or networks with some of that stuff in a meaningful way. And I think particularly in terms of what we're talking about, like community and individual responses to harm and how we're kind of wanting to address and approach that within these kind of, I guess, communities um, so that we actually can be there in solidarity with each other um, and in trust with each other because we can learn to respond to um, different kinds of violences and harms together. Mm. We heard a song at the opening of the show. What was that track? That track was called Falling by Bumpy and it definitely gets me feeling all sorts of ways. A song about love, um, something that's kind of a, a bit hard to talk about in the context of violence. But hopefully we'll also talk about in our upcoming shows kind of the, I guess, social constructions of love and romance and what that means for us and why kind of those songs about love still pull at my heartstrings (laughs) even even when I have this kind of critique of 
the ideas of love and romance. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so desperate for love. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and how to have like, I don't know, how to actually not have really two-dimensional, I guess, conversations about all those kinds of things as well with uh, limiting possibilities and experiences and actually opening them up instead. So today we were going to talk about a range of things. I wondered if you want to introduce what we're talking about today. Awesome. Well, maybe first we might start by, um, I guess, identifying that a lot of our, both of our influences um, of this work has come from communities of colour, has come from uh, First Nations communities who have worked endlessly to address family, sexual and intimate partner violence in their communities, often because often because those communities cannot, I guess, use the state kind of, you know, provided services and resources such as policing and so have had to find ways to address intimate sexual uh, family violence. And so we are very much uh, influenced by um, these kind of amazing people and communities um, who have done this work throughout, you know, since I guess the beginning of time if we're thinking about like Uh, First Nations communities addressing harm um, without the state and but a lot of this also work has been um, and the work that we have we do and have done has been kind of focused on gendered family and sexual violence and so we kind of wanted to frame this as this work has come before us and um, and we're influenced by that. But we're also, we a lot of our work is in this context of gendered family intimate partner violence and in community responses and accountability around that. And so even though tonight we're kind of going to broaden that to think about what other kinds of harm and violences look like um, and why, you know, it's often kind of very narrowly focused that's kind of this the context of, I guess, the w- work both Arnie and I do. And I think maybe something else to say in that is we're not going to kind of go over introductions of transformative justice or kind of introductions into community accountability um, in this show. We will kind of just step into conversations and kind of take a deep dive in and you know, I think if you're after kind of those resources, uh, the introductory resources, we are definitely up for sending you a bunch of links. Um, of course, there's the www World Wide Web that you're, <laughs> you're able to search. It has magnificent resources that you can look up. Uh, but we're also, yeah, very much open to sending you a bunch of things. And also we do want to eventually kind of create um, a website so we can put some things on there too. In that vein, I guess, I think tonight we're wanting to start with talking about, I guess, even just our definitions of family violence and what that kind of means for us in how we work and um, work alongside, work with people who cause harm, people who cause family violence and people who cause intimate partner violence. 
and I guess I wanted to start here by kind of outlining these two definitions and then Annie and I would kind of have a chat about these and how these have kind of influenced us and our thinking about what the differences in these does for, I guess, how we come to community accountability, how we come to responding to harm. So a really like the kind of most, I would say, prevalent kind of definition of family intimate partner violence is kind of goes like this. So it's a bunch of behaviours, physical, emotional, economic, sexual, and many more that is intended to gain, exert, and maintain power over another person or group. So I feel like this is like the kind of common definition so that someone is using a bunch of behaviours intended to gain, exert, and maintain power. And I think there's like this other definition that has come from a lot of people who have worked in men's behaviour change, a lot of uh, people who have done victim survivor support uh, work, who have this kind of different definition, which is that um, similarly, there's a bunch of behaviours, physical, emotional, economic, sexual, and many more that result in and maintain power over another person or group. And so we can kind of see this very subtle difference in language, but Ani and I wanted to talk about how it actually creates a huge difference in our thinking. So if we think about the words they are result in or intended to. So yeah, Ani, what's mm. your thinking around these two? Mm. Well, I think it's interesting just in my own personal experiences of growth and change, I suppose, over time. And Also thinking about how I've learned to think about harm and particularly about like gender-based harm and family violence as, you know, sitting within that, I suppose, within this binary of really like an individualistic binary of good and bad people, bad people choosing to do bad things and having a thinking that yeah, people who use violence have this intention to dominate that's conscious and that's in the front of the mind. And so a lot of the time, you know, and I really, yeah, I've kind of thought so much through different experiences I have about ways I have engaged in community and individual responses to harm in the past that have really thought about people in this way and kind of wanted them to admit that as well, you know, so... I think when I've had that thinking, I've, I have had a really negative view of people. And, I, you know, it, it's hard there because I'm not saying that people's behaviour or causing harm is not a negative thing. But kind of stereotyping them or categorising their intentions in this thing of they just want to maintain power or they just want to be in control has often led to, yeah, like me wanting to punish them in some way or like the responses that I'm in kind of, yeah, sort of forcing people to acknowledge or admit a certain thing that may or may not have been true and often has resulted in, you know, people being quite defensive or just a really individualistic focus as well, I think, that if somebody wants to or intends to dominate somebody else, that there's some kind of evil in them that is not comprehensible to me 
they're so different to me um, and so different to other people and the harm that they're using or causing is so different to what I could possibly do and creating this kind of concept of the other that really has led to, I would say, like responses that are generally based on exclusion and pressure to acknowledge in a certain way or perform in a certain way and I think it's interesting like in the experiences I've had you know where I've kind of really had to challenge a lot of my thinking and a lot of the ways I've gone about things and you know a lot of also like deep regret and um, yeah like consideration I suppose in those sorts of reflections but you know especially I think in working with people in a, in a more mainstream context, actually, like in the context of men's behaviour change and learning a whole lot of different things through that experience, realising that, yeah, a lot of the time this kind of um, intention to gain power wasn't, like maybe it was somewhere within people, maybe it's somewhere within all of us in different ways, but that wasn't like what people were necessarily sort of thinking or wanting in in a conscious way. And kind of wanting them to admit that when that might not be anything that relates to them doesn't kind of go anywhere. And it's really interesting to sort of think about that, you know, that often people do a whole range of things that they think are normal. That is based on this kind of entitlement or these beliefs or attitudes that they've learned growing up in this world that taught them that and taught me that too you know it's not like I've lived in a different world or grown up in a different place maybe I received messages in certain ways because of who I am and how I'm placed in this world but all these kinds of beliefs and attitudes that encourage a certain kind of behavior or thinking that a certain kind of behavior is you know our right or normal or these kinds of things and then doing all those things leads to a situation of someone being in power or someone having control when that might not have been sort of the intention. And I don't know, approaching that in that way actually allows me to have conversations with people and with myself about all the ways that, yeah, all the things that we've kind of learned in this world have led us to do all these kinds of things and created a situation that maybe might not be actually the kind of relationship or community that we want. Mm. Yeah, I feel like like similarly in terms of when I kind of held on to that first definition where it's the that people intended, like do, are doing all of these things as, as an intention to gain um, and maintain power that like – I feel like it was such a shock for people that, you know, when I was kind of, I guess I would use the word interrogating them about this, they were like, that's not my intention. Like, I don't want to have power over my partner. I don't want to um, have control. And they would be so shocked by this. And, you know, I think they would often be like, that's not my intention, And I think when I kind of switched my thinking into that all of these things that people are doing, like what you said, that are learnt and, you know, we're conscripted into this dominated culture, into kind of into patriarchal ways of being, into power over these things that we've kind of learnt and and choose. I think when I kind of started switching into that thinking that these things are what then 
um, enables someone to then have power over and control in their relationships that I could then see this potential in them that they wanted something different that it wasn't they weren't so stuck to that but I think in the kind of first definition I was thinking like that people were kind of a bit awful and I mean (laughs) like it is awful right I think thinking that someone is like stuck in that was not good for me in terms of me like working with people that cause harm and when I started to think about it as all of these things do the behaviors all of those behaviors do maintain and do result in it was actually like a more open conversation with them and I think people were more able to kind of see that to see how those you know so say if we think about like you know if someone's talking about what kind of mood they kind of create in the house like who sets the mood of the house for example and like over time I think you know when you have a conversation with about with someone about that and what that looks like over time people can see that that means that you know people are then kind of walking around them and altering their behavior because of the mood that they've set and but whereas if I was saying that you've set that mood intentionally I think often the person was like no I haven't you know that's not what I'm doing I don't want my family to be to be doing that or I don't want this person to be doing that yeah, it's like a makes it a, like a more open conversation and maybe does make it easier for people to see how their actions and behaviors have like led to having like a harmful impact on people around them. Mm. Yeah, and actually that just made me think of something else, you know, that like I think I've often been preoccupied and especially like earlier in my life with this question of why and in a way that was like not understandable. And I think that still is, you know, like in a way, like why, like why do we live in this world? Why do these things happen? Like it's pretty (laughs) like, I don't know, you know, but really like this kind of looking for an individualistic explanation Mm. to that, like why did this particular person make these choices or do these things? And I think, you know, as a person like trying to, you know, think about why, why did I do this thing that was so terrible? It's kind of like a stuck place to be in, in a way. And it can kind of actually, I think, stop you or stop people from being able to really think about the impacts of what they're doing on others. And I think, you know, often when there's sort of conversations about these approaches or these different definitions, I think understandably there's a nervousness to take away at all from like this serious devastating horrifying impact of 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 abuse and abusive behavior on people you know and that somehow taking away like the intention to maintain maintain power might do that and I think the interesting thing about what I've seen is in a way the opposite Mm. that actually like being being open to the fact that somebody might not set out in life going, this is what I want to do to my partners. These are the kind of relationships that I want to have. And to acknowledge that sometimes can actually enable, you know, a conversation that leads people to see that that is though, unfortunately, what, mm-hmm. what they did do and what did happen. And d- despite... <laughs> what they might have sort of wanted, 
you know, for themselves in their life at the beginning. And, yeah, to sort of think about all the ways that they've learned to be a person that's gotten in the way of maybe what they really (laughs) wanted when they said, okay, you know, what kind of relationship do I want to have? Whereas I I feel that I was – I really didn't want to take away from the seriousness of what was going on. And so – Yeah, I remember when I was, when I first started doing men's behaviour change work and kind of a lot of the literature is around that. So people make choices in their use of the harmful, violent behaviour and the actions, but often the thinking is unconscious. And I remember having this real like kind of body like reaction to that, just being like, like, no, like all of our stuff is completely conscious. And like, if we take away the kind of consciousness of that, then we're taking away from like what's happening to like and what's happened to me in like the violent relationships I've experienced. Like I know that was like conscious, conscious, you know. But I think what I feel like I've learned over time in doing this work, both in like the unpaid and paid work, is that a lot of the thinking is unconscious. Like we are like indoctrinated, all of us, and like conscripted into like dominator thinking and entitlement thinking. So whilst we can like make different choices around stuff, like I feel like we're so immersed in it, you know, we're so immersed. It's like so often like actually like so easy for people to like have behaviours and like enact entitlement thinking because there's not – there's not many examples of like how to do stuff differently and then like a lot of that entitlement thinking yeah thinking is like unconscious and so like the work that we kind of are wanting to do with people who cause harm is like bring it to consciousness so then they're they're, like able to like shift and change it so for example you know like having like deservedness around different things in your relationship I I was always like, that's like, surely that person knows that, right? And then in working with people, like they kind of, it wasn't, they didn't know that. They just had the behaviours because they were like, well, these are the behaviours that I do in a relationship that get me what I want. But they wouldn't have linked that to like deserving that. And so I guess like, yeah, I feel like kind of the journey is like, working with someone to like bring the unconscious to consciousness in their thinking, in their kind of entitlement thinking. But it was hard for me, I think, to see it as that. Um, And I definitely felt like this weird body thing where I was like, that's just not true. (laughs) And even now, like sometimes I really struggle to hold on to that, like even in the group space in men's behaviour change when we're talking about that and sometimes like you know in a debrief my facilitator is like yeah that seemed like so unconscious and I wonder how we can support that person to like you know come into consciousness around that I'm like (laughs) I have to like remember that it's like that thinking that it is totally conscious does individualize it because it doesn't connect violence to like dominate a culture you know, it does mean that actually we're just thinking like people are kind of born <laughs> into this thinking mm-hmm. um, rather than like it's learnt and like mm-hmm. conscripted into and we actually have to like do a whole bunch of unlearning. Mm. Yeah, and then, you know, I think the ways again within that 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 can kind of prevent, like, you know, when we're talking more broadly about like community accountability, it is linked within this framework of understanding 
you know, violence in relationships, in personal situations as linked to these attitudes in culture, this like hierarchical oppressive society on so many levels that we all live in and what we learn about ourselves based on who we are and our experience and what we learn about others within this kind of culture. But, you know, when we're kind of thinking about that like consciousness or that intentionality within that, I think it does get in the way of community accountability in the sense that you know, people who are more obviously fit a certain kind of stereotype or conception about this thinking or about who's causing harm or about, you know, what people are saying or why are more likely to be positioned or, you know, framed as people who are causing harm. And then how does that kind of not get everybody else to unpack and unlearn all of these kinds of oppressive beliefs and attitudes that they've also grown up with and enact in all these different ways, perhaps not in the same ways. And how does that sort of individualizing mean that we do end up in this like competition about who is a good person and who is a bad person and what are all the things that that gives rise to that does exactly the opposite of changing some of the ways we all live (laughs) yes I totally want to talk about that more but I wonder if we could talk maybe a little bit about what's going on in terms of I guess like the definitions of family violence are broadening in terms of like in terms of legality and then that what that kind of means for many people but maybe do you think we should go for a, to a song first? So I'm thinking that we could listen to Cosmic Dancer by Valerie June. Strange. 
Okay, so before we went to that song, we thought we would talk a little bit about stuff going on in terms of criminalizing coercive control. So I guess for people that have experienced intimate um, and family violence, people that have experienced those harms um, have known that it's not just physical violence and that often it's the um, emotional and other violences that, you know, we hear from many uh, victim survivors that once like kind of, I guess, physical violence has happened, um, that all that is needed is the kind of emotional and other kinds of violences because there's always the threat of physical violence. Um, So we know that there's these things have always, always happened, but legally um, only physical violence is recognised. And it's it's interesting because it's kind of still not recognised in terms of like uh, the kind of charges that people get is things like threats to kill, like assault, and things like damaging property, but family violence itself is like a, is in the civil realm. So IVOs are like civil, and to get a criminal charge, it's it's you've got to go under those kind of categories that I said before. So there has been like this big push for coercive control to become criminalized, and I was wondering, Arnie, like what your thoughts have been about this, what this means for guess the kind of work we do in terms of community accountability in terms of working with people who cause violence and some of the impacts too on victim survivors Hmm. the hard thing when talking about a lot of a lot of this stuff in terms of movements to criminalize behavior is the complication in that a lot of the time you know at least some of this push is coming from people who've experienced family violence and who haven't been able to um, seek protection or, you know, a sense, I guess, of justice within within a context where the only sense of justice that's offered to people is the idea of um, conviction through the criminal legal system. But, yeah, through the legal system as it is. 
And so, you know, wanting more ability for people who cause harm in these ways, who use coercive control to experience consequences for that and, you know, and and also to be, I guess, removed from Mm. the place of causing harm to people. However, coming from an approach of seeing the criminal legal system and, you know, the, the prison system within the context of colonial state violence and as a perpetrator of coercive control um, itself under, you know, white supremacist colonial capitalism, <laughs> it's like, yeah, that what, what is actually going to be the consequences um, of criminalization in this way who's going to be targeted how how is it going to add to for example um overrepresentation of different people within the prison system in a context where for example even um mainstream like sort of research and approaches to understandings of family violence recognize colonization as you know the main driver of violence in um, against First Nations people, for example, and family violence in First Nations communities. So, you know, what does it mean to understand um, these sorts of behaviours within the context of a culture that creates people to be this way, both through attitudes and beliefs of entitlement and oppression and also through trauma and all of these kinds of things? Yeah, what does it mean to then further criminalise these kinds of um, behaviours? And also what does that mean for people who are experiencing violence when we also know that victim survivors are often targeted by the criminal legal system, particularly First Nations women and um, women of colour who are victim survivors who call for help are frequently um, seen as the aggressor, seen as the perpetrator, seen as violent and criminalised in these sorts of ways. And so having something like coercive control when what is the definition actually going to be and, and how without a kind of societal understanding of oppression can coercive control not then actually be used by the system and also by um, people who are, you know, abusing their partners against victim survivors. I know, right. Like I was thinking so much about like this recently, especially because like as we know, there's been huge pushes for this and I think there's stuff going on um, in New South Wales around it um, in a legislation way, but um, I, I'm sorry, I'm not across it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I was thinking about like the um, really high amount of um, particularly women and First Nations women who are criminalised, so who are currently in prison for their um, experience of family violence but have been uh, labelled as the perpetrator um, of family violence. And so, you know, I think in terms of the ways that women are often portrayed as manipulative, for example, as liars, as 
hysterical. And I feel like a lot of the research around um, police response has been that they, when they approach like a family violence situation and see someone presenting in this way, that they um, essentially, they see that person as the, they call it the, um, yeah, the dominant or the predominant aggressor. So they see that person as being the perpetrator of harm because they're like, well, that person's acting in this manipulative, hysterical um, way. And I think when I think about who is going to be labelled in that way, I'm like, oh, my God, like it's often going to be women who were who were seen as that. And because especially in terms of like a police response, like there's just not like a solid understanding like in policing and in the criminal um, legal system around like around family violence so like yeah I do have like this fear of who this will impact and whether that just means well firstly it does just mean like more criminalization and I think about who that will be and then secondly I think in a broad sense like I know that you know I I want justice I want justice for victim survivors I want I, I want people to experience that but unfortunately, we kind of live in this system where often criminalization doesn't actually mean that people shift and change like their harmful behaviors. Um, so even when that does happen, like even when people kind of get a break right from their partners by being incarcerated for a short period of time, often that person doesn't come out like having, you know, changed and shifted their behavior. In fact, they may have gotten more violent and or like still continue their abuse, which is often what happens in prison. So, yeah, the kind of increased criminalization from like another kind of legal change worries me as well as in who then is criminalized and why. And I think kind of anything in terms of like family and intimate partner violence where the response is like criminalization, um, I'm often wondering like, why we're heading in that direction and kind of who's doing that push, which I see as largely white carceral feminists. When I hear who like the biggest voices are in that debate, it's usually like this kind of person. (laughs) And I wonder what that is about and why we're not listening to uh, First Nations women, to women of colour and to victim survivors as well who, yes, like many victim survivors, um, you know, I'm wanting that, what you talked about, that kind of sense of justice, are wanting, like, to be safe, like, are wanting, like, their families and themselves to be safe. And at the same time, like, uncomfortably for many people are also wanting to, like, um, have their co-parent, have, like, the father of their children be around in their lives and to kind of have that person, like, change, I guess. Mm. You know, so many people that we work with where, you know, the person is often like, I just really want him to, like, get better and to, like, stop doing what he's doing and to, like, you know, be the person that I first thought of him as. Um, That's not the case for everyone, but, like, so many people we work with, like, talk about this. So I'm not, yeah, I have... I'm so I'm conflicted you know because when we think about like death and like lethality I'm I of course I'm like fuck how do we stop people from dying right of like family and intimate partner violence and I don't have very many answers when I think about that but or but at the same time what I do know is like a push for criminalization doesn't solve that either Mm. 
as we've known. So we've had an increase in sentencing. We've had an increase in in like longer sentences and in harsher sentencing, but that hasn't decreased family violence. Mm. If those things correlated, I would be like, oh, like prisons are working. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like they're not, so I'm still like anti-prison. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. And I think with all this stuff, like kind of coming back to that, you know, even those definitions before and how we – you know, how we kind of take all of this stuff into also like, yeah, work around transformative justice, right, where we're wanting to end oppression <laughs> in a way. Like I guess that's the, the yes. overarching belief, we're wanting to end oppression. But, yeah, like what does it actually mean, you know, when you place family violence, gendered violence, um, sexual violence within the context of a broader society of domination, like the main logic of this entire society is in domination, coercive control, oppression in all its forms, you know, through colonisation, through, you know, and the economic system that that has forced upon the world and, you know, all the mentality that has come with that and the extreme um, different forms of violence, but also the different kinds of harms that aren't easily categorised as violence within the kinds of ways that we've learned of it. But that thinking again where, you know, how do we replicate the thinking of the criminal legal system in the ways that, mm. you know, we then try and go, okay, how are we going to address oppression in this individual situation, in this relationship? And the criminal legal system is based on this idea that, you know, there are some bad people who intentionally cause particular kinds of harms that are recognised and they're not allowed to as opposed to they're the people who are meant to cause the harm, you know, such as the police or something like that, you know, and, and it frames people in this certain way and this kind of binary and therefore you've intentionally done this, you need to be punished and then once you've experienced punishment, you will choose not to do this anymore. Mm. But that's not <laughs> what we understand about oppression um, and also the oppressor dealing out consequences and all these kinds of complicated things like that but in what ways do we then replicate that same kind of thinking in the ways that we approach such a ginormous reality of you know everything we've learned about how to be people and what that means in terms of different forms of domination in our communities. I was thinking about this article and maybe we can quickly talk about it because it links to what you were saying Arnie um, and it's the Rethinking Our Movements article from Connie Burke. But there's some interesting stuff in here. So that kind of speaks to some of what you said. And it's – so Connie Burke is from the Northwest Network and this article was actually written quite a while ago. But a lot of what Northwest Network is trying to do is talk about intimate and family violence within uh, queer same-sex relationships and to kind of get that – I guess, to stop, to stop it from being invisibilized and silenced. And Connie Burke talks about how, like, the uh, real reason why same-sex uh, family intimate violence stays off the table is white women's investment in white supremacy. And I remember when I read this, I was like, oh, my God, like, wh what is Connie saying to me here? So I'm just going to, like, read out this section of the article 
and briefly talk about it. (laughs) So Connie says, so when we look and see there's same-sex domestic violence, that women can take power over other women in intimate relationships, it naturally by our own analysis would make us look at how women take power or can use power over other women in our institutions, in our organisations. I believe that white women have a real vested interest in not having that conversation. Um, It would bring into question the way class and race and homophobia and anti-Semitism and other oppressions work within our movement, within our community institutions, within our own homes. It would bring all of those relationships into the question of how we look at power and keep them on the table. And then Connie also says here, like, in the anti-violence movement, it would seem intuitive that if people are not willing to talk about same-sex domestic violence, it must be because of homophobia. And certainly we can see homophobia playing its part in that kind of invisibilizing and losing the story of it and it's staying undiscussed. But now Connie's saying that they believe that this homophobia is in service to white supremacy Um, So the real reason why same-sex family violence stays off the table is white women's investment in white supremacy in maintaining as their primary identity their membership in an oppressed group, and that's the group of women. So it's really disruptive to that to talk about how women use power over other women. Mm. And I just, yeah, I remember reading that and I was like, oh, my God, like it's so true. Like if white women had to like give up the like – category of oppressed like and like address like the kind of like dominator culture that you were speaking about so address all of it how like so much of like white carceral feminism like wouldn't just like it's nothing like it wouldn't work because and all of those people would like have so much to like challenge in themselves and like what would it mean to like their identity I guess to not just just be oppressed to be also like using entitlement thinking and like you know like in the work that we kind of do like we talk about that as just like everyone has entitlement thinking Um, and so we you know think it's important for us all to kind of you know challenge and work on changing that and dismantling it as much as possible but yeah if yeah when like Connie was talking about that I'm like the upholding of that is so important for carceral like and many like white feminists Mm. yeah and I guess you know the idea in a more mainstream way but also in a lot of the ways in which I've engaged with community accountability and transformative justice and like you know the things that I've learned and read and so on it's like when you know when we kind of talk about the broader societal violence or frameworks of oppression within which family violence, for example, is situated, it's often just talking about men's oppression of women, like flattening Mm. the world into this situation rather than locating family violence and, you know, other forms of like intimate partner and, yeah, like intimate um, abuse within the actual broader context of a dominated culture and all the different ways that that looks and all the different oppressions, particularly in the context of white supremacy and colonialism, you know. And so what does it actually mean for how we think about addressing harm and how we think about a community accountability to not frame or think about 
these forms of violence as different to or separate from the real the reality that we're living in completely and like yeah if we were to open that up to not just be thinking about yeah entitlement thinking in in the context of yeah family and intimate partner violence and think about entitlement thinking and dominator culture I wonder what our conversations would look like with each other Mm. on that note (laughs) (laughs) it's um we've never been known for being quiet unfortunately (laughs) but it's pretty much the end of the show now (laughs) whoopsie (laughs) but you know we are really interested in conversation and so obviously this is like a first show but if people do want to sort of engage provide feedback thoughts ideas for conversation or you know want to come on and talk about stuff you can contact us in a variety of ways including um instagram now I'm engaged with the world of Instagram. It's a whole new world, so I'm very contactable. <laughs> <laughs> but we have the what's the Instagram? Radio A and A. Yeah, radio dot a dot and dot a. Yeah. And we have oh. same as our email address is that at gmail.com. Cool. So please get in contact if you want to. And our next show will be in a few weeks' time. And we'll be um, doing an interview with some organisers of the Incarcerated Trans and Gender Diverse Community Fund. And we'll be talking about the links um, between prison abolition, the anti-police movement and community accountability work. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. Um, These conversations are hopefully always shifting and changing too. Um, So we are so wanting that dialogue with you all.
burning in the skin If you wanna call me something Call it to my face But I will not apologize for taking up this space Every time you cut me down I'm gonna come back fierce The time is through for being nice Let's call it what it is listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.